We are looking this morning at 1 John chapter 4, picking up in a series that we've been in for some time, and Pastor Cosby uh, left off uh, in the verses just leading up to our passage two weeks ago, and we are picking up on uh, this passage here in 1 John 4, beginning in verse 13, and we're going to read down to verse 21. In some ways, it is a reiteration of what Pastor Cosby brought before us the last time we were together, that if God has loved us, we are called to love one another. We are in that section of this book that is focusing on the test of love. How do I know that I belong to him? Do I love as he has loved me? Have I known his love first, demonstrated in the gospel, and then have I loved as he has loved me? And John as he is sometimes accustomed to do, likes to reiterate points that he has made and uh, re-nuance them, and he's doing that for us. And I know that you're going to find it a great help to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning. If you are able, I would invite you to stand, and we are going to read together 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. And now the apostle and... You know this, he is called the Apostle of Love for good reason. Now says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love, and You may have memorized this with the object after this, we love him. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. You may be seated. Well, there is a perplexing feature of life in this fallen world, and especially in a country that has been endowed with so much biblical truth in in the United States. I remember Many, many years ago, my wife and I were doing evangelistic ministry on the boardwalk in New Jersey, and uh, almost to a man, every person we would seek to share the gospel with and who was not a Christian would say at some point in the congregation, the conversation, you know what I believe about God? I believe that God is love. And not one of those people that said that actually believed that God is love because each of them rejected the manifestation of the God of love in the death of Jesus on the cross. Um, The natural man cannot love God. The natural man loves sin. 
We, we have all been there. By nature, none of us love God. None of us have a heart of love for God, and none of us can stir up love for God or others. Uh, by way of contrast, in the 20-ish years I've been a believer, uh, I have known in my own heart, and I have uh, many times witnessed with professing believers, earnest believers, that there is the opposite struggle, that those who have been redeemed by God, those who love the gospel, those who love Christ, um, oftentimes lack a sense that God loves them. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson has put it so well that, that the Christian life for so many of us is often, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not, depending on what day it is or what hour of the day it is. And so much of that is because believers are oftentimes shaken by a sense of our own sin, our own failings, our own uh, lack of devotion to the Lord, our prayerlessness, the way that we speak to one another or to our spouses or about others, even in dignified and sweet ways. And, and yet we, we are left with a sense that, that we are not what we should be. Uh, nevertheless, the Bible is very clear that um, God's love for his people is not dependent on anything that we do or say, and that he gives a full manifestation of it in giving his son, as we've seen in the last section of this, to be the propitiation for our sins. Um, John is writing to a people who are beleaguered by false teachers, these Gnostic heretics who, who said that they had a superior spiritual sense of knowledge that they had attained to some sort of mysterious knowledge and that these believers who, who John is writing to who have been redeemed by Christ that they somehow don't have the knowledge of God that somehow they've missed out on that and, and John is going to say in very clear terms those who are trying to trouble this congregation they say that they know God but they don't because they reject the Lord Jesus but those who are shaken and disturbed he's saying we know that we know him. John 11 times in this book says in some way, shape, or form to professing believers, this is how we know that we know. 53 times he talks about knowledge. 11 times he is helping believers come to a settled place in which we can leave uh, from hearing this and we can say, I know that I know him because he has done this for me and has manifested his love in such a way for me. Now, as we look at this passage together, I want us to consider three things. First, I want us to consider uh, the assurance of God's love. And then secondly, I want us to consider the benefits of God's love. And then third, the replication of God's love, the assurance, the benefits, and the replication of God's love. We'll notice that John, now reiterating a section he began in verse 7, says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. How do I know? How do I know that I belong to him? Because God has uh, brought me from spiritual death to spiritual life. He has taken out a heart of stone and he has given me the new birth. He has opened my eyes by his spirit to see. You see the false teacher, teachers coming to this church and telling the believers they had the real knowledge they actually couldn't see because they didn't have the Spirit of God. They were in every way like Nicodemus, and Jesus is speaking to him of spiritual things. And 
Nicodemus doesn't understand. He can't, he can't understand. He has, he has loads of intellectual knowledge, but he doesn't have eyes to see. And Jesus says to him, unless you're born of the Spirit, you cannot see the things of the kingdom of God. You cannot see the kingdom. But here, John, who records that for us in John chapter 3, now records to these believers, he says, we know, we know that we belong to him. We know that we abide in him because he's given us his spirit. Um, there is always this sort of a harmonious witnessing in the souls of believers between the word of God and the spirit of God. The spirit of God is always taking the word of God and, and causing us to love it and to understand it and to know our need for it. Um, before I was converted, I hated reading the Bible. Uh, the moment I was converted, it was a world of grace and new life. The Spirit opens our eyes to see the glories of Christ and the glories of God's love for us. And He enables us to understand what God has done for us. Now, there is, there is a there's a Trinitarian divine work here. Very interesting. When John is talking about the assurance of God's love, he doesn't go to you and what you're doing. So often, uh, we live the Christian life thinking that we are carrying ourselves along in our salvation when it is actually God's salvation that carries us along. It's not... What you do, notice, he, he's already mentioned the Holy Spirit. He says, he's given us of his Spirit. And then notice the next verse, verse 14, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Here are all the members of the Trinity at work together, bringing assurance of salvation for the people of God, helping us understand what is the foundation of the assurance of God's love. It's not how disciplined you are. It's not how much you wish you were better. It's not how good you've done today or how bad you've done yesterday. He says he's given us his spirit and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. You see what he's doing? He is directing us in a very real sense away from ourselves and to the triune God. This is a divine work. This is a divine work. Um, God brings himself forward as a witness he says, we have seen and we have testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. You know, the disciples bore witness to the saving work of the Father and the Son. They had seen the Son coming into the world. They had seen His miracles. They had heard all His teaching. They had seen His glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. They had seen Him in agony leading up to the cross. They had heard Him say, my soul is weighed down with sorrow. How exceedingly sorrowful even to the point of death they had seen him in the garden weighed down with grief as he contemplated what it was going to cost to redeem us to himself looking into the cup of god's wrath they had seen him john had seen him john had stood at the very foot of the cross and had seen him pouring out his blood and his soul unto death as an offering for sin for your sin for your sin and my sin he had seen, he had borne witness, he had seen the full manifestation of God's love. You know, many theologians actually believe that John, when he writes this, certainly the fourth gospel, 
is writing it at the end of his life, probably in his 90s, looking back at when he was a young man and thinking about when he was standing at the foot of the cross and and realizing that he understood more of the love of God at the end of his life because he understood more of the greatness of what Jesus had accomplished. Um, So much so, you've heard this, that there's tradition that John would be carried through the congregation when he couldn't walk anymore, and he would say, little children, love one another. Love is from God. How do we know that God loves me? The Father gave His Son to be the Savior of the world. And we sometimes look for the assurance of God's love in our circumstances. I, when I think Anna and I were engaged, said to an older brother who had mentored me, you know, God must really love me to give me Anna as a wife. And he said, God loves you and sent his son for you. That's how you know how much God loves you. It's not in how well things are going in life, not how much money's in the bank, not how well your children are doing, not how disciplined you are, not how successful you've been, not how much of a good time you have. Um... We know, we know because the Spirit opens our eyes to see what the triune God has done and specifically what the Father has done in sending the Son. Sinclair Ferguson says this, it's one thing for the Spirit to come and open our eyes, but what does the Spirit open our eyes to enable us to see? What does he point us toward as he's taking away the scales from our eyes? He points us toward what Jesus Christ has done for us and to open our eyes to understand that the Father sent his Son into the world in order to be the Savior of the world. Notice that that's what he says, not just that he sent the Son into the world, but that he sent him to be the Savior of the world. That means if you feel your need to be saved, you are perceiving the love of God in the death of Christ. Um. We come to know this love when we feel that we need to be saved. Have you ever felt your need for a Savior? Um, And then as we feel it and we hear the gospel and we hear the truths about the Lord Jesus and we hear about his crucifixion, we hear that he's a sacrifice for us, we we look at the cross and and we understand that there's a world of love in what's happening on the cross. And I've, I've used this quote, I love it, Augustine Famously said, the cross was his pulpit and the message was love. That's, that's what the cross is saying. Um, you can never think about Christ crucified enough. If you're struggling with assurance, you fix your eyes on Jesus Christ crucified. There's never a time when you can be meditating on the sacrifice of Jesus that God is wanting to pull you off of that onto something else. There's never a time when you finally get your mind and heart fixed on the Son of God nailed to the tree for your sin and for my sin that God ever wants you to move from that. In fact, the goal is always to stay there, to stay fixated on that. Why would we ever move away from that central place? You know, Charles Spurgeon said, reflecting on verses like verse 14, and when I look at the cross, and I see that the Father has given His Son for an unworthy sinner like me, 
I think it, it almost seems as though He loves me more than He loves His own Son. It almost seems that He loves me more than He loves His own Son. That's, that's the takeaway. That if God would give up His eternally begotten, infinitely divine Son, if God would give Himself for us out of love, how could we not see that His love is the grounds of our assurance in the work of redemption? Um, you know, everything that John is teaching here is really a summary of what he heard Jesus teach in the upper room on the night when he was betrayed. I don't know if you know this. Uh, what was the last thing that Jesus talked about before he entered in on his suffering? Well, he talked about the triune God, didn't he? He talked about his Father, and he talked about himself, and he talked about his Spirit there in John 13 through 16. The last thing, the very last thing that the Son spoke about on his way to the cross was the triune God. And he talked about the love of God, and he talked about abiding in the love of God, and he talked about everything he was procuring for his people, and he talked about all that he was going to accomplish, and he talked about the love and the joy and the peace, his love, his joy, his peace, that he was going to give them. That's the last thing that Jesus talks about before going to the cross, and that makes it extremely significant. John is saying, everything you need to fixate your mind on for the assurance of your salvation is rooted in the triune God and the saving work that he does in Jesus. Um, and that's what we confess and profess to believe. Notice verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Now, First John, and you probably know this, is written uh, as, a, as an addendum to, to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And First John is written that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And, and John is essentially saying, how is it that we continue to believe in the Son of God is by understanding how God has manifested His great and infinite and eternal love in giving His Son on the cross for your sins and my sins. And, and as I see that, I continue confessing that. I'm, I'm 43 years old. I was converted when I was 24. And it has been astonishing to see how many seemingly fervent Men and women who have professed faith in Jesus Christ have rejected that profession of faith and have departed from their confession of faith. And, and the only thing I can make sense of when I think about that abandonment of the gospel is that they never, they never really saw the love of God in the death of Christ for sinners. Because if you really see that, you want to see it all the time. Because the reality is our hearts are always pulled in a thousand directions. Every time we sin, we can shift gears into He loves me not. Until we see that the Gospel keeps working, that that love is being perfected among us. Um... You know, 
thinking about the Lord Jesus Himself. He, he is the walking embodiment of, of love, so amazing, so divine. Um, Carl Spurgeon, in one of his sermons on this passage, has this really beautiful meditation. And I, I meditated on this several times this week and just thinking, and I need to hear that so often. Listen to this. Jesus cursed no man. He called no fire from heaven upon any man. Even when wicked men had nailed him to the tree, he breathed a prayer for them. Even when wicked men nailed him to the tree, he breathed a prayer for them. Every way, he was not a destroyer, but a savior. But not often. In every way, he was not a destroyer, but a savior. And so John says, whoever confesses that he is the Son, God abides in him, and he he in God, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Um, I want to encourage you first this morning to be oftentimes meditating on the sufferings of the Lord Jesus for your sin. Again, you can never think about it enough. And when we forget it, we will not understand, nor be settled, nor be assured of the love of God. That is the epicenter of the assurance of God's love. Well, John now, as he likes to do, bring out logical uh, conclusions to what he is writing, and he does this now, talking about the benefits of God's love. There are there are benefits. This is not just a sort of ethereal conversation about about a uh, 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 God who has an unobjective or undefinable love, and and it doesn't really do anything for us. It does a world for us. Notice that John tells us there are benefits. Notice he God wants us to enjoy the love that he has manifested. Notice verse 17, by this in love, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Now, nothing unsettles the mind and heart of a believer so much as the contemplation of the last judgment. Nothing, nothing will oftentimes shake your soul so much as a contemplation that one day every thought, every word, every action is going to be laid bare before the divine courts of heaven and God is going to mete out a perfectly just sentence. Um, one old Southern Presbyterian, John Algerido, he was the pastor of a all-black congregation in Charleston, South Carolina. He, he has a very famous sermon called The Last Judgment and in very vivid imagery, Jerado paints the picture of every man, woman, boy, and girl on the last day gathered before the throne of God from Adam to the last person born. Everyone gathered a sea of people from all the nations that have ever existed on earth. And, and the angels and the archangels and, and, and God is there to measure out according to what each has done. And, and Gerardo says at one point in that sermon, how unspeakably solemn. We're going to be there. How unspeakably solemn. And 
And, and yet, and yet, for the believer, because of what Christ has done, there is no fear for that day. Isn't that amazing? The perfect love of God, manifested in the death of Christ, to be the Savior of sinners, dispels ungodly fear. Now, there are two kinds of fear the Bible speaks about. There are, at times, places where the Bible calls us and commands us to fear the Lord, to live in the fear of the Lord, to get the fear of the Lord, to understand the fear of the Lord. And that is that, is that reverential fear. That is that acknowledgement that God is God, that God is holy, that God is righteous, that, that he is to be worshipped, and he is to be believed, and he is to be followed, and he is to be trusted, and he is to be obeyed. It is, it is a reverential fear of the God who gives to all life and breath and all things. And yet, the Bible speaks of what we call a servile fear. Oh, and how many of us have that often. You know, the reason John's writing this is because he understands that this is a problem endemic to almost every believer, that we can have our faith shaken, our assurance shaken, and we can start to live in servile fear. Notice what John says there in verse uh, 18, so beautiful. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. Now, I have no doubt that John is reflecting on the words of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 5, where Jesus says, Whoever believes in me, he has already passed from death to life and does not enter into judgment. One of the greatest things the Lord Jesus ever said, Whoever believes in me has already passed from death to life and does not enter into judgment. How, how is it possible that there is going to be a day of judgment that is going to be unspeakably solemn and is going to be the absolute worst day of your life if you're not a Christian. And yet on that day, there is no fear, and even now, there ought to be no fear in the heart of a true believer. And the answer is because Jesus Christ underwent the judgment that we deserve, and he took the wrath that we deserve for all of the sin that we have committed. Every lustful look, every angry thought, every proud thought, every greedy thought, every hateful word, every evil action, every misplaced affection, every blasphemous thought, every unclean thought, every angry thought, every bitter thought. Oh my, you could just go on and on and on. And the Lord Jesus takes all of that sin on himself and, and brings the eternal judgment into time and space on the cross and takes all the wrath that we deserve so that there is no judgment if you're a believer. Jesus says, whoever believes in me has already passed from death into life and does not enter into judgment. John says to us this morning, there is no fear in love, perfect love, cast out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. Um, Jonathan Edwards, the New England Puritan, in what is one of the greatest books written in church history, Charity and Its Fruits, talks about the conjunction of the attributes of God and, and talks about how God's attributes work together, but, but particularly in thinking about love and servile fear, fear of judgment. Edwards says where, where, one, where one rises, the other sinks. 
And where the other rises, the other sinks. That's what John's doing for us. He's saying, perfect love casts out fear. Um, here's what Edward says. Listen to this. This is beautiful. Love tends to hope. Love of God creates hope in the soul of the believer. Love tends to hope. A spirit of love is the spirit of a child. And the more one feels within himself the spirit of a child, the more natural it will be for him to look on God and go to God as his father. The childlike spirit casts out the spirit of bondage or slavish fear. The Apostle John tells us that perfect love casts out fear. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. That is the benefit of God's love that John is seeking to establish for true believers here in this passage. And then, finally, we see that there is the call to replicate the love of God. If God has demonstrated that love in order to assure us and what he's done with Christ, if he has then caused us to be the beneficiaries of that love and knowing that now servile fear is driven out and we can have confidence and peace with God and we can go to God as our Father and we can come boldly to the throne of grace and we don't have to tremble thinking that I'm going to here depart from me, I never knew you because he's already dealt with my sin on Christ, then what ought to be the response? And John says the response ought to be the replication of God's love in our lives. You know, very interesting, the divine love, the love of the triune God, not only drives out servile fear, it drives out hatred from the human heart. Isn't that interesting? It drives servile fear out of the human heart, and it drives hatred of our fellow man out of our hearts. So that if I'm harboring hatred in my heart toward anyone, I don't know and I'm not established in the love of God. You know, those who were troubling the, the uh, believers here to whom John is writing, that they said they knew God, but their lives were full of malice. They didn't love these people. They didn't love others. They loved themselves. Um, their, their profession didn't line up with their life. And notice John, John says that we love because he first loved us, that if I have come to know the love of God... and Listen very carefully. Unless you know this love in the death of Jesus on the cross, you will never know how to love people. You will never be able to. By nature, we hate others. The Bible makes that very clear. Our own consciences convict us of that. By nature, the Bible says that we were hateful and hating one another. That, that you can't undergo any uh, reformation. There's no 12-step program to learn how to love. Um, but when God's love is shed abroad in our hearts because of what He's done in Christ, and we come to see and know that He has loved us, then we begin to love others because we were first loved. His love becomes the paradigm for how we're to love. Now, this is not a sort of warm, sugary, saccharine, fuzzy feeling that we're being called to, and I'm not, I'm not saying that there's no warmth, and there certainly is warmth and sweetness in our love toward others, but this is, this is love in action, just like God's love was in action in rescuing us. This is, this is not saying to our brother or sister, go, be warm, be filled, it's caring for their needs. It's not saying, I wish they paid me more attention. It's saying, 
how can I care for them more? How can I pray for them? How can I bear their burden? Um, got a friend, actually. Last week, he's a pastor, and he's a pastor of a newer congregation, um, which he's been recently called, and he said, so, so I, have, I have a problem. What is it? Always problems in ministry. And, uh, and he said, uh, so I have an individual in the church who um, wants to have some sort of small group that's just them and their best friends, and, and we were trying to include others and trying to help them understand why we wanted this to be a congregational, uh, inclusive ministry. And, and he said to this individual, you know, I, I just want to make sure we're loving we're loving others, and this individual said to him, but when are they going to love me? My, I, I said, wow, that, that could even come out of someone's mouth. But when are they going to love me? That's what we are by nature. But God says, here, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You see, we can't God. Um, we walk by faith, not by sight. We take Him at His word. We know and are, and are assured of who He is. But at the end of the day, the only image of God that you will ever see in this life is the person sitting next to you. We are the image of God. You know, James says, how unfitting that believers could bless God with their tongues, the God in whose image they're made, and yet curse men who are made in the image of God. You see, that's, that's what John's getting, John's getting to here. Whoever hates his brother is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot, does not love God whom he has not seen. Um, so that if I can honestly say, yes, I love the brethren, even the ornery brethren, and that's often the litmus test. Or as Pastor Chuck read this morning from Romans 12, what about your enemy? What about, what about those who have done you so wrong? Um, if we've been loved by God, we want to be a people who love. And, you know, this is the mark that God's love has gripped my life. This is the mark that I've understood the gospel I really love the people of God. Um, this is also a witness to the watching world. Francis Schaeffer has this really wonderful way of speaking about the call to love as a, as a mark that we've been loved by God. And, and he's speaking about Jesus' teaching on it in the upper room that John records for us. And, and, and this is what Schaeffer says. He says, Jesus gives us the final apologetic. What is the final apologetic? What is the final defense that we belong to God? He says, what is the final ap apologetic? That they may be one, Jesus prayed, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is the final apologetic. So that if I say that I believe in the love of God, but I hate my brother, I am bearing witness to the world that I do not really belong to Christ. But if I love my brother, I love my sister, because God has loved me and done what he's done for me in Christ, 
that that's not only a mark to me for assurance of my salvation, it's actually the final apologetic to the world around us. Because the world can never, ever get to that place. You know, I, I hope... I hope that you will let the truth of the love of God in Christ Jesus, crucified for your sins, wash over you this morning. We need that more than anything. God has loved us with an everlasting love, despite what we are, even when we were dead in sins and trespasses. And then that you would let that work its way out and that you would enjoy the benefits of that, which means when I am on my deathbed, and I will be there sooner than later, and so will you. What are your thoughts going to be about Judgment Day? John would have you have this ruminating in you now, perfect love, cast out fear, because fear involves torment. That, that the love of God in Christ would quiet your consciences. That you would know He has done everything to redeem you. That He is the Savior of the world. And then, finally, that we would go out and we would be agents of replicating that love. You know, that's, that's what we're called to. I remember as a boy, my, my dad recurrently saying to me, you know, the Reformed Church is very, very good at doctrine. And the more Reformed they are, they're really good at doctrine. And they love justice. And are not very good at love. There's a whole lot of truth to that. There's a whole lot of truth. This is, this is the thing. Um, that God would make each of us to be a people who emulate the love that he has shown us freely by his grace to those around us. What, what a witness to the watching world. It would be the final apologetic to who Jesus actually is. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you that you have given your Son to be the Savior of the world and our Savior. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you left the glories of heaven to come and suffer for us because of the great love with which you loved us. You have revealed yourself to be the one who loved us and washed us in your precious blood. Lord, we thank you that you have taken the wrath that we deserve the punishment that we deserve. We pray that your love would drive out that servile fear that often we find residing in our minds and hearts. We pray this morning that you would then make us agents of your love and that you would give us grace to love the brethren, especially those who are difficult to love or who have hurt us. Lord Jesus, would you please perfect your love in us that it might be a witness to who you are in this dark and hateful and perishing world. We do pray these things in your name. Amen.